0: I do have, um, you know, friends who have decided, well, I'm older uh, and I don't want to forsake having a sex life. And that can be a healthy risk or an unhealthy risk, depending on how you go about it.
1: That's Joan Morisenko, who believes taking chances and eating chocolate slowly are keys to happier aging. This is dropping in from Omega Institute a podcast that explores the many ways to awaken the best in the human spirit. I'm Karen Michelle. This is a spoiler alert about a different podcast you may want to check out. It's called The One You Feed. The title comes from a parable about the two wolves inside of us, the one identified as good and that other bad. They battle. The one that wins is the one you feed, you decide. And for some great guidance along the way, Listen to Eric Zimmer's talks with all sorts of people with advice for living a fuller life. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Consider it a meal for your inner wolf. Joan Borisenko, doctor as in PhD, is a Harvard-educated cell biologist, a psychologist, and self-described practical person. That's what led her to be a pioneer in recognizing, connecting the body with the mind in all ways, physical, emotional, spiritual, that unity is what she emphasized in her workshop at Omega Institute, aging with sass and class. There was plenty of, well, sass.
0: As we, you know, stress a little less and enjoy a little more, we become more sane and a little sillier. Who's Who has a better sense of humor now than when they were young? Anybody? It's like, I love to laugh. And, and it's great. And I, it's... You know, I know that, that we're in an age where it's very easy to take offense at everything. It's politically correct to take offense at everything. But I try not to take too much offense. Just to like live and let live, <laughs> it's a nice thing.
1: And probably good for blood pressure and relationships. I figured I'd take Joan Borisenko and her word about not taking offense when we spoke a few weeks later. She, from near her home in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and me from my place near Omega in New York's Hudson Valley. She started off philosophically, but we soon got down to the more real nitty-gritty.
0: So at 73, I think to myself, ah, the process of aging, like the mellowing of fine wine, uh, getting much more in tune, not only with our own bodies and minds, but with what's going on, in, hopefully, our family, our community, and our world. And being able to kind of sort out the patterns of life and offer that ability to see the larger pattern to others. So I think that's the cycle for women, and it's a bit different for men, but the elder wisdom years are very important no matter what gender you're in.
1: But but back to the elder wisdom you're referring to people as fine wine, we're not all fine wine. Some of us are just vinegar. <laughs> Some of us, you know, the cork pushes itself out, it gets bad, it's not worth aging. And you're implying that we're all fine wine. And that all of us as we get older become wiser. And yet I doubt that's true. It's not true. And I'm very glad you brought that
0: up because I'm giving you the idealized version. And I think it's important, in fact, and it's a very big part of my work to look and see what happens when the aging process is afflicted, curtailed, and not only ends up as vinegar, but ends early and curtails the ability to heal. And I have to tell you first, Karen, that I'm a great believer in the possibility of healing at any stage in the life cycle. And I'm also a realist, and to have good aging in a certain way, we need to have good youthing. And if we don't, uh, what needs to happen is healing in the interim years. And that, of course, is what uh, not only Omega Institute has so many programs that address, but that's my personal interest. Health and healing across the lifespan and healing from trauma.
1: There's a great deal of emphasis on that lifespan. Statistics comparing ages, races, places, diets newly named, while claiming to channel an ancient past, cosmetics, potions, and lotions, and of course, motions, too, claiming to extend and firm up life and limb. Labs doing research on extending the lives of flatworms and fruit flies and emaciated mice. Extrapolating from short lived critters, what could happen to us? If we do find a way to live long, say 120, 150 years long, and have the resources to do so well, far, far from a given, for many people, getting older is itself traumatic. In his book, The Longevity Economy, Joseph Coughlin, who founded and directs MIT's Age Lab, writes that old age is made up, is what academics call a social construct. Given advertising and what's to me creepily referred to at gerontology conferences as reframing aging, millions of people literally buy in. Now, is there a goal to live longer or just to live better? What is the point of longevity?
0: People have very different goals, don't you think? (laughs) First of all, uh, I think many people, many people, as they grow older, Um, are certainly concerned with their mortality and simply want to live longer uh, because, well, they have family, they have friends, they have things that they enjoy. Other people want to live longer because they have fear of dying. Some people want to live longer because they feel they have such a mission, such a purpose. And by the way, what the research literature says, is people of a strong sense of purpose do live statistically longer than people without a sense of purpose. And uh, we have many reasons. Some people, however, don't want to live longer. And when illness happens, that changes up the equation a lot.
1: Ah, equations, the balancing of yin, yang, earning, spending, saving... As if with a world not yet ready to receive and support an aging population, in the U.S. alone, there'll be a projected 1 billion residents aged 65 or older by 2030, nearly twice as many as there were a mere 15 years before. Blame the boomers. I- I'm curious if you particularly have any sense of the statistics, they're coming in rapidly, that boomers, and I guess you're at the forefront of the boomer generation, would that be correct? Yeah, technically, I'm a year too old to be a boomer, but they've adopted me. (laughs) You're nearly a boomer then. I'm not going to cut a month here or something or a year. That a great number of boomers have no so-called retirement savings if they should plan to retire or be able to retire. There's going to be an enormous population of really poor older people, which changes, I would think, much of the thinking about longevity and quality of life and how one ages without the social support systems. And and many boomers, as you also know, don't have those grandchildren or children that you refer to as a reason for getting old. Will this thinking about aging and longevity need to change and need to change quickly? One of the reasons
0: why I decided to give a workshop on aging is because I wanted to see how people are feeling about aging and about things just like what you're talking about, because there are a tremendous number of changing circumstances uh, in every generation. In this generation, uh, particularly, people used to retire at 65, from jobs that they had had for some period of time. Not everybody, of course, but more people. And suddenly we do have this large number of people who hasn't planned well for the future. Uh, And we've had the disappearance of the kinds of of jobs that leave you with pensions, uh, etc. And it's a big sociological phenomenon, and nobody knows how to deal with it
1: yet. There's an industry, a longevity industry, if you will, at this point where living a long time really means you have to have the resources, the financial resources, not only the human resources of health and community, but you have to be able to afford to grow older. Well,
0: this is true. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the great fears, that people will outlive their money. And of course, if you want to go to a spa and get longevity treatments and study up on the supplements, of course, that costs money.
1: Still, for some, that's part of achieving what's often called successful aging. Like you can fail at it? (laughs) I think Bob Dylan summed it up with his choice line, he not busy being born is busy dying. Joan Borisenko gives similar advice when we continue with her take on aging with SAS and CLASS. But first, a word about Omega Institute for Holistic Studies. For more than 40 years, Omega has been hosting workshops and retreats on yoga, mindfulness, art, sustainability, women's leadership, health. It's a rich mix. And with this podcast, I'm introducing you to some of the remarkable teachers exploring Omega's mission to awaken the best in the human spirit. Joan Borisenko's workshop is one of more than 350 programs offered each year in Omega's beautiful campus. It is nestled in New York's Hudson Valley. To learn more about Omega, visit eOmega.org. That's E-O-M-E-G-A dot O-R-G. Better yet, make this podcast your entry point into all things Omega. Subscribe to Dropping In, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, and tell a friend. There's a curious romanticism attached to truly old people that is, if they're not ignored, an assumption that wisdom, a certain Obi Wan Kenobi ness, comes with the wrinkles. Joan Borisenko says that, well, why not? And if not then, yeah, make it so. You you said that aging is a time and I'm going to quote you when the potential for transformation is very great for all concerned, the alchemist base metal into gold. So when you say the potential for transformation other than let's say the <laughs> transformation that gravity has, what do you mean by that?
0: <laughs> I'm a, I'm talking about The kind of transformation, which can be emotional, which can be spiritual, which happens sometimes as you begin to look back over your life and you begin to see, hmm, there are all kinds of interesting patterns that have woven into here. And then there are some loose threads. Maybe there's a person... um, In your life, I call these sacred enemies who was somehow or other a problem for you. You might have been a problem for them too. But you never kind of found a way to
1: integrate that into the story of your life. Correct me if I'm misunderstanding, please. Are, Are you suggesting that a person can essentially rewrite the narrative of the life they've already had? Yes,
0: yes, absolutely. We can rewrite the narrative. And uh, I probably do four or five workshops a year about either rewriting the narrative of your life or
1: um, writing memoir from that point of view. Okay, excuse my cynicism, but in these times, it's hard not to be. So it's almost like fake narrative instead of fake news. You're changing your truth? Is that the case? No, they're actually finding the truth. Um, you, you, you're you a great
0: interviewer. I love this. You're not changing the facts. The facts are the facts. You can't change the facts. Um, but you can say, okay, the facts were my mother died when I was two years old and I never finished grieving her and I never had a mother figure. And my father was so busy as a result trying to raise five children that I never had a a father either. Now, what are you going to do with those facts? For some people, those facts um, are like, well, I'll never be a success in this life. I was dealt a bad hand. And I've been depressed and anxious and paranoid all my life because of this.
1: Oh, okay, so these are people who dwell on their past. That's yep. right.
0: But then, then you find people, same set of facts, but somehow they develop strengths. Through this difficult thing they become more resilient, and their, their life experience is very different. But the, the first person, you know, so that's what I mean. No, facts don't change. Facts are real, but meaning changes. And the human soul likes to make
1: meaning. Yeah, so, so one of the things I'm curious about, because you referenced your clinical past, is in your workshop you talk about faith and trust, and then every once in a while there's some science there too. So how do you meld for you faith plus science? Mega beliefs, literal beliefs, through the microscope, through the mindscope.
0: <laughs> it's great. You know, for me there is no distinction between um psychology, spirituality and biological science. That sometimes people find shocking, but that's what I've spent my life studying. Uh, and let's let's take a look for example at faith and trust and science and spirituality. So You know, the question people often have um, is like, well, what's spirituality? What does this have to do with things? And the answer to that is spirituality is not doctrine, it's not dogma. It has nothing to do with sacred texts or theology. Uh, If you ask uh, these days uh, psychologists what is spirituality, they'll say it is a deep sense of connection. And it involves somehow or other finding meaning in life. And there's a wonderful psychiatrist from Harvard who's embellished upon that in a very practical way. His name is Dr. George Valiant. And he defines spirituality as a constellation of eight positive emotions. So We're talking about things like good attachment, a sense of of trust, uh, love, compassion, gratefulness, joy, hope, peace. And what his premise is, is if psychology and psychiatry would spend more time helping people to discover this constellation, these are all what we call pro-social emotions. They help people connect with other people. If we spent more time on those and less time on negative emotions, then people would make a lot more progress in terms of being able to be present and being able to be joyful, hopeful, etc. cetera. And uh, there's a whole field called positive psychology. Which looks at this... Mm
1: -hmm. Sorry, but there's also all of Buddhism. All of Buddhism, exactly. I mean, you're talking about the kleshas, really. Kleshas are what's called the mental afflictions. Think, if you will, the seven deadly sins, but lots more of them, and a bit different. Stuff like jealousy and anger, and then there's confusion.
0: Well, that's right. Uh, Don't you love the word kleshas? It sounds like a Yiddish word. Oi, I've got kleshas. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean those are the the negative mindsets that keep us stuck and keep us out of the present moment. And so the what's what's interesting about Buddhism and psychology is they've had this psychology for thousands of years that we're just rediscovering in a way in the west. And then all of these things have physiological correlates. If you're in the grips of anxiety or in the grips of anger you're releasing different informational molecules different neurohormones you're creating different circuitry in your brain because the you know the negative thought patterns end up embroidering shall we say not exactly a scientific term but embroidering certain pathways in the brain and you're you're pitched into this negativity from the tiniest triggers that may not even be conscious to you. The sound of someone's voice, or this person looks like somebody I once knew, or whatever it might be. So the process of becoming present and conscious of, oh, this is what's going on in my mind and my body. And then taking a moment and actually beginning to develop a sense of choice. I can react to this the way I always have, or I can take a few breaths and maybe choose to calm down and look at it a little differently. I'm fascinated, of course, by by all of that. And I do consider it um, all
1: one whole, the the mind and the body. Do you ever feel like going back into the clinical practice... Rather than for want of a better term, motivational practice? No. Perhaps because she's freer to combine her interests in the mashup of mind, body, and spirit with song?
0: So um, I'll sing it, and then this side will start, and then this side I'll tell you when to come in. It's very simple. I am remembering who I am. I am remembering who I am. I
1: remembering, yes, am. but also being fully present, moving ahead, taking risks, whether as Joan Borisenko mentioned in her workshop, her husband's welding and Spanish classes, or something potentially way more vulnerable at any age.
0: Having sex without a condom. <laughs> there you go. But I do have, um, you know, friends who have decided, well, I'm older, uh, and I don't want to forsake having a sex life. And that can be a healthy risk or an unhealthy risk, depending on how you go about it.
1: Sure, post-menopause, pregnancy isn't the worry. But STDs still are. And as so-called seniors behave more like, oh, college or high school seniors... And as both sexuality and aging get reframed, reconsidered, reenacted, so are some of the many pleasures of life. Joan Borisenko told the workshop that for her, showering is a form of meditation.
0: Another one is the eating of chocolate, which is (laughs) a sacramental rite. Because there's nothing worse than you get a nice chocolate bar and you're busy, like, watching the television or reading a magazine. And all of a sudden, half the chocolate bar is gone. And you never actually enjoyed it. So um, I like that Vosges chocolate. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's a young chocolatier. And on the back of the, the um, cardboard container for it, It's a whole thing about how to mindfully enjoy the chocolate. Starting with smelling it, scratching it a little, so more of the fragrance comes. After a bit, snapping it and feeling how it's, the, the actual sound and feeling of how good chocolate snaps. Then what it is to put a tiny bit in your mouth And I don't actually eat very much chocolate because I'm really satisfied like with a single piece of that. That's it. So it's great. Uh, Vosges, V-O-S-G-E-S. My very favorite is the chocolate peanut butter bar. (laughs) Yes, this is a full service workshop on aging. (laughs)
1: As if to counter the joy, excuse me, the meditative quality of chocolate consumption, and I'm not one to argue against it, Joan Borisenko went on to talk about caloric restriction as a way to live long and lean. Many years back, I visited the Southern California home of a pioneer of that belief, Dr. Roy Walford. I asked to look in his fridge, not much to eat, but a half bottle of Riesling to drink. It was worth the calories, he said. So you in the workshop, you asked groups to come up with an answer to the question what they fear most about aging. What kinds of answers have you gotten in the years you've been doing these workshops? What do people fear?
0: But I'd say the greatest fear people have in aging, the greatest fears are, first of all, physical, that, um, you know, the fear of the loss of function and the loss of dignity. Um, What happens when you can't go to the bathroom by yourself, for example? However, some of these fears are very interesting. The fear of being in a nursing home. Uh, One statistic is only 2.5% of people ever go to a nursing home, and yet it's such a huge fear that you would think that this was true of 90% of people. It is not. But people will often say, I don't so much fear death, but I fear the process of dying, the progressive loss of function, having to rely on other people. Pain. Pain is a, is a big fear. Uh, then other kinds of fears that uh, I think are, are important for people have been existential fears. What's going to happen when I die? Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? Am I going to make the cut? Those kinds of, um, those kinds of fears. And then, of course, there's the fear of money. Am I, am I going to outlast my money? That's a very big and common fear.
1: Would you suggest, this is just throwing this out here, that, that people, uh, a memoir looks at the past, that they write their, I, I don't know if there's such a thing as a promoire or something, uh, to allay those fears? Well, you know, this this is interesting. A friend of mine
0: um, just came to visit, just this last weekend, uh, And she had taken a training in being with the dying, being a doula, like a doula helps someone be born. Now there are doula trainings to help people die. And in terms of being proactive, she said, one of the things that they had to do, there was a three-month period in which they had to think about, okay, pretend this is the last three months of your life. And what it is that you need to finish up on, how you want to die, how you want to be buried, what you want your memorial service to be like, who you want to be there. And uh, I thought, wow, that's a very, very powerful exercise because it's specific. And when you begin to think, how do I want to live for the rest of my life? Uh, I think the three-month thing makes it uh, suddenly acute, and therefore you have to deal with it. And that's a very interesting exercise, I thought. But I'm thinking also um, of a study that was done at Yale years ago. And what they found in that study was that that the most... Um, one of the most important things in longevity was how long you thought you were going to live. So I'm thinking I'm going to live to 95 or 96, and I think a great exercise would be if that's the case, i got 23, 24 years left, how am I going to spend that time? What do I want to accomplish? Who do I want in my life? Where do I want to live? Uh, and actually, would be a great exercise to do just that. Uh, kind of pro pro. What did you call it? A promoi.
1: <laughs> a promoi. I don't know what to call it. Yeah. Okay. Last my my dog now clearly wants to go out. I apologize for his barks. He's a talking dog. <laughs>
0: And if you have a dog, you'll live longer, Karen, already. You're in good shape. (laughs) I
1: love it. I really did have to walk my dog. And maybe if you've got one, or rather are gotten by one, it's time for a walk, too. As Joan Borisenko notes, that's all part of good health, good life, good aging, however old you are. And singing can be part of that. Come on, join in if you wish. Take a little risk. Dropping in is a presentation of Omega Institute, dedicated to awakening the best in the human spirit. If you like what you hear, tell your friends. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps New Year's find us. And to learn more about Omega, visit our website at eomega.org. I'm Karen Michelle. Remember to check out The One You Feed. It's a podcast that'll feed you. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And to learn more about the show, Go to ww.whenyoufeed.net. Dropping in is written and produced by me. The editor is Catherine Stifter, the Music and Mix, or by Scott Mueller, and Rob Harris is the executive producer. Thanks for dropping in.